0: Welcome
1: to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the WFIU-WTIU newsroom. For the fourth month, we are recording the show remotely because of COVID-19 to reduce the risk of spreading infection. Today, we're talking about plans for the school year reopening. We have three guests with us, or four guests with us. Uh, Jeannie Lindsay, I, I'm identifying her as a guest. Jeannie is the Indiana Public Broadcasting Education Reporter. She'll be answering some questions today, but she'll also be asking a few questions. Jennifer Smith-Margraf is the ISTA Vice President. That's the Indiana State Teachers Association. Paul Farmer is a teacher with the Bloomington High School North and an MCEA, Monroe County Education Association President and Judy DeMuth is the superintendent of the Monroe County Community School Corporation. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. You can also send us questions for the show at news at org. So thank you all for being here. Paul Farmer, Judy DeMuth, you were here just a few weeks ago uh, and I want to start with the two of you. Uh, superintendent DeMuth, Dr. DeMuth, how have things changed in the last couple of weeks? Are you still full speed ahead on your reentry plan.
2: Well, thanks, Bob. It's really great to be back and thanks for having all of us. Um, as we said before, uh, this is an extremely complex situation. Um, yes, right now we're operating with the same reentry plan. Our buildings actually put specific plans out uh, for their families so that they could get a better inter- uh, understanding of the intricacies for each building. Um, Each building's different because of the different capacities of the building, the different uh, levels of the building, lots of things about the building designs. But the one overriding or arching theme is, you know, safety of our staff, safety of our students. Um, And we're daily in daily communication with our county health department and also the state. You know, I've been really fortunate to be with Dr. Box about every week. And so, uh, you know, our top priority when we started all this in March is the safety of our staff, the safety of our students. What does that look like? And then, of course, really serving our families because that's what we're here for. So um, although the plans have changed the same, there have been some modifications and we can get into that a little bit. But again, on a daily basis, we're monitoring the health, safety and well-being of our both students and staff.
1: All right, Paul Farmer, from the MCEA standpoint, are you still, uh, you were relatively comfortable last time we talked, are you still comfortable about going back in the classroom? Yep,
3: yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks for uh, giving us the opportunity to come on uh, like Dr. DeMuth just mentioned. Um, it, it, no matter what, as we go down this road, um, the stress levels increase um, because obviously cases have gone up um, and uh, so, Am I in the exact same position? No way. Uh, none of us can be in the exact same position that we were just two or three weeks ago. So we, we as we go forward, you know, we have to keep, as Dr. DeMoose said, safety in mind. And uh, do we have teachers out there that are more concerned now than what they were before? Absolutely. If people aren't concerned, then I would have a question about, okay, why are you not concerned? Um, so that is something that, as we continue to move forward we look at all of our building plans we uh we have teachers involved all over the place in our corporation um uh, lots of input in each building um as to how the buildings are going to uh keep kids safe keep teachers safe eat lunch so on and so forth transition with with classes and so on so um from a standpoint do we feel better about how we're going to proceed forward sure Um, but at the same time more concerns about okay if we do have an outbreak if we have a student or a staff or somebody that does come down how is the Monroe County Health Department going to work with us as we move forward? How are we going to make sure that we maintain that safety? So, um, you know, we, I know Dr. DeMuth, we've talked about this before. All of our students and staff are required to wear a mask. We are washing hands. We are using hand sanitizers. Each room is being cleaned every single night. So, there's a lot of precautions and things going in um, that that research and our doctors. Um, Dr. Box at the state, recommendations, that that we are moving forward and we're doing, for the most part, exactly what they say that we should be doing. So we're scared, yes, (laughs) but who wouldn't be moving forward?
1: So I want to broaden this out and ask uh, Jennifer Smith-Margraff, the ISTA Vice President, about your view from around the state. And I will preface this by saying I saw your interview with WRTV6 last week, and uh, and you said you know you hope that people would be prepared because it's not if but it's when a student or a teacher dies which is a pretty dire outlook for how you think things are going to go forward so could you expand on that
4: good afternoon Um, first of all let me say thank you for allowing ISTA to join you today in this important conversation the main message that we have from ISTA is that looking around the state we're missing a couple of things that it sounds like at least one of them Monroe County has in place. Um, And then the other that we are hearing from around the state is still an issue. And that first piece is that there is not a universal mask mandate for students and staff in all of our schools. And from what we know through the science that has come forward um, from all around the world that the best thing that we can do, especially when we are in interior spaces like schools, is to have everyone wearing a mask to prevent the spread. If you look at Japan specifically, because in Asia wearing masks is much more common than it is say in some of our Western cultures, they have not had to shut down the way we have and yet have prevented having huge outbreaks the way that we have because they are all wearing masks. And so that's something that we talked about asking when we talked about with our meeting with the governor earlier this week, asking for that mask mandate to be put in place, because that's one of the most important things we think we can do in order to stop the spread. The other concern that we still have that we haven't seen a good answer to is having clear metrics for schools and school corporations to determine when it is that they should be closing a building and going to virtual instruction. Um, As Paul alluded to, cases are rising in certain parts of the state Um, and in certain areas, the tension and fear is much higher because of that. And so what we're looking for from the state is to get some clear metrics that help people understand that when these things do happen, we are going to take their health and safety into account and we are going to close buildings down in order to protect them and transition into online learning.
1: Okay. And Jeannie, Lindsay, you've been covering this from a statewide perspective. So you've heard our three previous speakers. So are those the issues that you're hearing when you're talking to people around the state? Or are there other things that we haven't gotten to yet?
5: Yeah, I absolutely think that all of the points that have been raised already um, are what I've been hearing a lot of. One of the things that's come up in few weeks uh, that I've heard during my reporting is also about equity um, for students so you know with with schools opening back up um, there are concerns about academic equity um, you know learning losses and gaps especially for students who might not have had the same resources um, when they've been learning from home or learning remotely Um, but also this concept um, that I talked to a school nurse about is medical equity. Um, one of the things that um, I've seen schools doing, and, and the guidance from the Department of Education has talked a lot about, um, you know, if students have symptoms, you know, sending them home and you know, separating them in, in a sort of you know clinic sort of thing um, if they have COVID symptoms while other students may not. Um, but but the school nurse that I talked with um, down in uh, New Albany was saying that, um, you know, it's, it's easy to say, you know, if a kid has COVID symptoms, they need to go home. But what happens if their parent is at work and they don't have a ride home? Um, And and so things like that have come up, um, especially with the conversations with the, you know, protests that we've seen focused on Black Lives Matter, Um, you know, the the questions about equity in schools have also come up a lot. So it's just making a complicated situation, you know, it, it. there's no end to the complicated nature of this, um, which is really tough for everybody involved, absolutely. But um, that, that is another thing that I've been very interested in talking with folks about and, and learning more about um, some of the concerns on that front.
1: Well, let's ask Judy DeMuth about the equity issue uh, and how the MCCSC is approaching that.
2: So uh, when we put our broad-based community committee together, that was one of the overriding guidance pieces or uh, facts that we wanted to respond to. And that was, we certainly understood that when we went to online, there were many children um, that even though we all, were all thinking everybody was home, they really weren't because there were a lot of people out in the field working. There were, you know, stores started opening up. Our, our first responders were out there working. And then through the months, we've seen more people working. And so it's really a, a difficult one because we realized that when children were online and they didn't have support at home, it was really difficult at times to get them to get online and get their work done. Our teachers did an amazing job Counselors, social workers, they were trying to connect with the families. On top of that, we had about 360 families that really didn't have good connectivity. And we tried to respond to that through our CARES grant by putting uh, internet on some buses that will be locating in various areas where we know the uh, internet is not very good and also um, having what's called a MiFi so that an individual family can also have connectivity. So we're blanketing those 360 families should we go online um, because we want to make sure, we know the, the most frightening thing is for us right now as educators, is that we know we didn't do our very best job with those kids as we closed down. And we know there are gaps and we know there was inefficient learning for a lot of our children. And we as educators wanna make sure we can close those gaps, become very efficient and get the kids the things they need. There's nothing worse or more frightening to us is to have a group of unlearned children, so to speak. And so as educators, we want those children and we know they have social and emotional needs that we need to handle, to respond to, And so that's why our plan, we've tried to really give different situations or scenarios for families to respond to, whether they want their children face-to-face, if they want a hybrid, if they want the child in school five days, and or if they want them online. We've tried to give all those scenarios and let families decide. And that's complex in itself because of the amount of work it's taken to prepare for that. However, I think we're going to give our kids a really good experience no matter what choice families make. But at the end of the day, if we are shut down, whether a classroom, a school, or us as a corporation, we know we have to be tight on our online services and really make sure we are working with children at home. Even if there's no one else at home, we have to make sure the kids are getting the education they deserve.
1: I wanna ask Jennifer Smith-Margraf about this issue as well, because you're looking at it from a, a statewide perspective and, you know, Dr. Demuth just outlined what MCCSC is doing. That's, you know, that's one local corporation's uh, attempt to address this. You know, you've talked about uh, state mandates or not mandates, but a state strategy as well. I mean, how how do you make sure that that this kind of um, this kind of an issue of equity is addressed when there are ninety-two counties in the state, and I've lost track of how many. How many school corporations there are 300 or so I I assume or quite a few anyway, Um, you know, how do you how do you make sure that this kind of care is taken throughout the state.
4: Well, that's an excellent question and an excellent point. Um, One of the things that I think is frustrating to educators is that we have been talking about these issues and these inequities and these disparities for quite a long time. They show up in funding in terms of how education is funded and in the funding formula. They show up in terms of who is able to re- recruit and retain the best educators across the state. It shows up in terms of broadband access and then people's ability to pay for, pay for getting into that broadband access and system. And so what the pandemic has done is it has surfaced all of these issues into a way that everyone is forced to see them. Whereas before, I think a lot of us felt like we were just seeing them in our own individual areas and it wasn't rising to the surface at the state level. And so we are hoping that the state legislature is seeing this as well. And we are going to be going forward into this legislative uh, session with renewed effort and energy to advocate on all of those issues, to get a statewide strategy in order to fix all of these issues that are going on. And you have alluded to some things outside of the education arena as well. Certainly we have seen that there are inequities in many of these same communities in terms of medical access and in terms of the safety net for people when their businesses shut down. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at our entire states and we're putting policies in place that are good for the entire state and not just for certain areas of it that tend to have more representation at the state house than others.
1: We're talking about reopening school today on Noon Edition. You can participate in this uh, live conversation by tweeting us at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We have gotten a couple of questions, and these are things that you've all all talked about just a little bit, but they're very basic and very specific. (laughs) One one of the questions is, how are the conditions for opening schools safer now than when we decided to close them? In the spring, and then there's a second question that's very similar. It's uh, cases of COVID are rising locally, statewide, and nationally. Is it safe to open schools when the virus does not seem to be under control? So, you know, any or all of you can address that. But I think I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Demuth to start.
2: Well, thank you. That's a great question. Um, You know, we aren't medical professionals. Uh, Dr. McCormick, our state superintendent has said that over and over. We have to rely on our health professionals. We have to rely on Dr. Box. Our county, Penny Cottle has been extremely helpful. Our physicians who we had on our committee um, we have to rely on those people because that's their expertise, and uh, we have to. I think what's changed is we've we've learned more about what's happening. Um, I think what's changed is people feel a little more confident with a little more testing. You know, again, I'm acting like I'm a medical professional, but I'm not. Uh, at the end of the day, I think there's a more of a confidence that they better understand the how to stop the spread. But look, when we started our, uh, our meetings uh, as a corporation way back in March or April, the doctor said to us, you know, you have to decide, you know, if you think you're going to stop this uh, from happening, you're not. So quit talking as a committee about trying to like stop it because you, you're not going to stop it, but you can certainly slow the spread and, and really you it's not if it's when you're going to be handling these situations. So, you know, I can tell you right now, you know, the Indiana high school athletic association began athletics a couple of weeks ago and all over the state, we've seen situations of COVID, um, us included, we work closely with the health department. Uh, they're helping us with families contact tracing. Um, and so those things are all happening, but quite frankly, you know, um, it's it's exhausting for everyone and i don't when we bring all of our children back and our staff back i think that will continue so from a medical perspective i think we'd have to go to the medical folks from our perspective it is an exhausting situation to try to make sure that we can accommodate all of our families and then make sure they're in a very safe environment
1: so you if mentioned uh, oh, yeah go ahead
3: so, sorry i didn't know if i could say something on oh that absolutely well. paul sure uh, um I think one of the things when you look at that I think you have to look at the differences between what was going on in the spring and what is going on now. Um in the springtime there was a lot of first of all just what is this virus? We didn't know a lot about it. We didn't know all of the details of how it was spreading. We know that it was in some areas like New York and and other areas around the world that, that in high densely populated areas we were overcrowding our hospitals. It was, it was a time when we just said, okay, we gotta stop. There was no plan for safety for students. There was no plan for mass. There was no, you know, in other words, we had to stop because we had to make a dramatic change. Since that time, research has come out. We learned more, doctors have done research, and we've learned a lot about this virus, and we've learned how um, how to help mitigate the spread of it. And so therefore, over the summer, thousands of hours have been put in by administration, teachers, our community to put together a program for our safety of our students and our staff um, to move forward. Is it perfect? Of course not. Is it gonna change between today and tomorrow? There will be things that probably do change. That's just, that's what we do. And so um, I, I think we have to look at it and say, things are different because we know more and we've had time to prepare. So. I think that's important to consider as we move forward and answer some of those questions about the differences.
1: I was just gonna mention, uh, that, that's a great answer, Paul, and I appreciate it. Uh, I was gonna mention the IHSA, uh, Dr. Demuth mentioned them, uh, the uh, state marching band group that has the competition has said there won't be marching band this fall as well, correct?
2: What I've read on that is that they're not going to have their state competitions um, I think they're, again, leaving it up to the local as to whether they will continue having marching band and doing the kinds of things that, um, you know, they that bands do, whether they perform at a football game, basketball game, or that kind of thing. But in terms of their actual competition, going to the state, uh, going to the various uh, uh, things that they do on weekends, those are the things that will not be in place.
1: Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Jeannie Lindsay, I want to ask you first and, and then... Um Jennifer, you can probably jump in uh, on this, but what have you seen from the state level in terms of of leadership on this? Has there what what can you point to that would show that the the state, either the legislature or state Department of Education, what kind what kinds of areas have they been leaders in this? Jeannie,
5: well. The Dr. McCormick uh, at the Department of Education has been hosting um, webinars, um, not weekly, they used to be weekly, but now they're kind of every other week, uh, a little more sporadic, but That has been, from from what I've heard from, you know, folks I've talked to after and outside of those webinars, um, those have been really helpful um, from what I've heard, um, just in terms of information, you know, it's a direct line from the head of the department. I mean, the top school official in the state to, you know, school administrators, and it covers every issue that uh, you can fit into an hour and 15 minutes. from finances and the CARES Act uh, and, and funding on that front to, you know, guidance. But a lot of the conversation, um, you know, as the plans for schools have been, you know, amping up and coming out has really directed uh, folks to the local level. Uh, a lot of the questions that, you know, have been asked um, to, to the higher-ups in state government, have, have really kind of deferred to local health officials, local health departments, local school boards, administrators, et cetera. So, you know, there has been kind of this overarching guidance. Um, that has come out, but it's, you know, just that guidance. They're not uh, really requiring a whole lot to go on. Um, And the plans that schools are coming up with, to my knowledge, those aren't actually being required to be sent to the state, Um, you know? So that's something that is is being kept at the local level. But uh, one of the things that Dr. McCormick has done that I've noticed, especially in recent weeks as, School conversations have heated up at the federal level. Um, uh, she is kind of taken on a role almost as, as a sort of, I guess, buffer um, from some of those federal conversations and debates about whether schools should reopen or not, you know, the, the CARES Act funding that um, uh, Secretary DeVos was talking about being split with private schools uh, because that was a thing. <laughs> um, you know, Dr. McCormick has committed to sharing the CARES Act funding going through her department, um, you know, in a, in a different way than what was initially talked about from DeVos's department. So that has been, um, I think, an interesting piece to see uh, just in terms of how, you know, the state is talking about this and how the state is moving forward despite some of the the Other rhetoric that's been talked about in schools. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, I think, uh, from what I've seen, maybe loose guidance um, that really has just kind of been deflected or deferred to that local level because they, you know, the, the Governor and Dr. Box and Dr. McCormick have all said that, you know, uh, Marion County is going to look a lot different than other counties in the state. So, really, uh, it's up to those locals to make a decision on what makes sense for their community and what people want in those communities.
1: Jennifer Smith Margraf, do do you want to address that?
4: Yes. Uh, thank you. So um, first of all, I would like to reiterate that I believe that Dr. McCormick and her department have been doing the absolute best job that they can. Um, Her weekly webinars that have now become biweekly are places that we all go and get great information and where people can ask questions. She's brought in Dr. Box to those webinars on occasions to also answer the more health related questions in those. And she's been very supportive of schools, most especially in terms of following the intent of the federal law, which they have clearly said was to do with With the CARES Act money, the way Dr. McCormick and the DOE is handling it, not the way that Betsy DeVos has come out and talked about it because she's trying to pursue her own personal agenda. And certainly not having the support at the federal level has made this all much more difficult for everyone at the state. I would say that we did have a running joke. Those of us watching the webinars was how many times would Dr. McCormick say you need to speak to your local health department? And that's again, where I think you're hearing most of the concern come from the members that we represent, but also from parents. The original question that you had asking about what's different now um, may have come from a parent who's trying to make a decision about a child who's medically fragile and whether or not they should choose to go all virtual, which is an option many school corporations are giving, or whether or not they should send them back to school. And part of the reason why I think Parents are struggling with that so much is because they, along with the members we represent, don't have a clear set of metrics to know okay, when we get to this particular level, this is where we're starting to have a. So let's use red light, yellow light, green light. Let's say right now, Warren County next door to me, I think has had 18 cases total. So they would probably be a green light. They're not a place where there's a high rising of COVID. As long as they have a good solid plan in place or doing things like wearing masks, they probably are in a better position to go back to school and have a very small outbreak if they have one at all. But we don't know where that goes from being a green light into being a yellow light where we really need to be more cautious and start considering to do other things. Or when we get to a red light where you know what, maybe we need to take this particular building or this particular corporation, we need to close down and go virtual for a little while in order to reduce the cases and come back. And that is where a lot of the stress and fear is coming from, because we don't have those clear metrics with which to judge. And the only place that we can look for those at this particular point is to Dr. Box and the governor, because the local health departments are just, they're they're set up to help us, but they're not set up to make those kind of big determinations. It really is something that needs to come from state leadership. And we communicated that to them earlier this week when we spoke with them, and we're hopeful that we're going to hear about some metrics shortly.
1: All right, we're talking about the reopening of school, which is to come up here in two or three weeks. So we're coming right up on it. We have four guests that we're talking with, Dr. Judy DeMuth, the Monroe County Community School Corporation Superintendent, Paul Farmer, a teacher at Bloomington High School North and the Monroe County Education Association President. Uh, he is, it's the union, he's the union president. Um, Jennifer Smith-Margraf, who is ISTA Vice President and Jeannie Lindsay, the Indiana Public Broadcasting uh, Education Reporter. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions there. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're starting to get some questions in. I'm going to take them in the order in which we've received them. The first one that we got um, a little bit ago was, are schools afraid that, and I guess it's for Dr. DeMuth, school corporations afraid the parents will point fingers if their kids do get infected? Are you worried about legal action?
2: Excellent question. Uh, yes, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before we see the lawsuits flying. Uh, there is contact, what's called contact tra- contact tracing. The state has hired contact tracers, and in the situations that we've been involved in, um, you know, there are certain days that uh, students have to be quarantine, thats the word that's used—and um, it depends uh, if they've, you know, come. Uh, they've been associated with someone else, or if there's a positive test. And there's all kinds of um, information that we're following from the Department of Health. But um, I think that parents, those parents who we've been involved with recently, um, typically it's been from somewhere else because school has not been in session. These have been activities kids have been involved involved in, but it's from somewhere else. So I, yeah, I I foresee, I I would be lying if I didn't say I'm worried about that for every school corporation in the state, um, because I think once all kids get back together, we may see a different picture. And let's face it, a lot of our kids haven't been out yet. So when they all get back together, we may, may see much a much different situation.
1: Do you know if there's anything that the that state government could do that would help protect school corporations against legal action in a case like this?
2: There was a lot of talk and discussion about uh, hold harmless um, for schools. Um, I don't know where that's at right now. I think it kind of fell off and by the wayside, quite frankly. Um, you know, we've talked with our legal counsel and many people throughout the state have talked about, you know, hold harmless document parent sign and, you know, unfortunately right now it's not worth the paper it's written on until there's um, substantial enforcement behind it. So right now we're all sitting out there, um, you know, thinking or anticipating that definitely there will be legal action uh, if in fact we have a situation that's, uh, you know, very drastic.
1: All right, we have this question from Twitter. We know we can't stop it, so why not delay it? Play it safe, especially with IU students coming back. Give teachers time to work on and improve their online teaching skills and move forward until numbers are down. I guess that's you again, Dr. DeButh. Or Paul oh, Farmer, okay. you want I to try okay. it? <clears throat>
3: Yeah, oh, I, was, I, I can jump in on some of that with yeah, that. Sure. Um, i mean there there are some things that like say for example we well let's just delay until the beginning of september or after labor day and so on and so forth um you know and they say we can give teachers more time to to prepare and so on and so forth one thing that we have to remember there are contractual obligations um you know we can't yes the teachers we have a contract it's 185 days and so dr demuth like uh, our first day is August 3rd so we go ahead and say we're going to delay the school until the start of September and if I was sitting here talking to DeMuth it doesn't matter I'm talking about it on radio but I'm going to tell her if we do that teachers aren't coming in August 3rd they're not going to be required because you have to look at the contract and so we will start we would have to do some form of discussionary I I don't want to use the term negotiations but but there are some things that that we have to follow um we have 185 days, the students have to go 180. So if we start in September, we're going almost to the end of, of June. Um, and so there are issues. And so, you know, teachers also have second and third jobs as well. Um, they a lot of, don't make enough money to be able to, to just teaching, they've got to be able to do a second and a third job. So I think it's just not as simple as doing that from a contractual standpoint. Now the science, because I teach biology, physics, and chemistry, comes out in me. Every researcher is telling you that as the fall moves on, it's not gonna get better. So if, if there's some teaching strategy involved, if we have to go online totally, as Dr. Demuth said earlier, there's a lot of our students, we struggled in the springtime with our online. So we do need to spend some time with some, especially some of our students who are behind to be able to help get them caught up, get them, uh, you know, our kinder, I think K through three or K through two, sorry, did not even use online last spring. They're gonna have to learn how to do that before we move that because they're gonna be online if we have to go online. So there's a lot of stuff that I think we gotta be careful about and think about Before we just jump in and say we're going to move at least two to three or four weeks before we get started, it's just not as simple as jumping forward immediately.
1: Dr. Demuth.
2: Well, I I would say you know, uh, Dr. McCormick has you know consistently said that um, all the health professionals are saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. She's encouraged us to begin school on time. Uh, You know, recently we saw an Indianapolis school move their time about a week back but they were to start at the end of July Um, we're pretty consistent with what's happening I think that um, the the state has come out pretty forcefully quite frankly in a document that talks about the integrity um, and um, of the the education that our kids receive Uh, they've let superintendents know that they were not pleased with what happened last year and they really want to make sure that when we go online students are getting five hours of instruction and six hours instructions as they've um, so deemed and uh, we know that that's not live instruction all day long but we certainly know it's going to be different than in the spring when we put um, what we basically did was try to um, have office hours for our students uh, and our staff members had some flexibility Um, this I think will be a little different for our teachers uh, to teach online because the expectation is that we've tightened up and our teachers have been fantastic over the summer um, really taking a lot of um, great coursework and professional development activities that we've been able to offer so I feel like they're much more prepared Um, so but there are complexities in moving it uh, just because we know we're probably gonna have to go all online uh, at some point in time through the course of this year um, the other thing we worry about is the social and emotional well-being of our kids. You know, uh, we're a very, uh, child focused people centered occupation. And so when we don't have those kids and we can't, um, meet their needs in every way, it's, it's very difficult. And, and we know there are kids out there struggling.
1: This is a question that's come in that, that sort of follows along that, um, the, the social aspect of all this, I guess I'm going to ask the, the two people who are involved with the most with teachers, well, Dr. DeMuth, you are too, but the two teachers union people to talk about this first. How how will students benefit from in-person learning when they must adhere to social distancing and enforce no contact, especially for younger grades? Well Paul, do you wanna Yeah, sure, sure.
3: Um, I mean, there, there's, Absolute. There's research um, out there uh, that even the American Association of Pediatrics with our doctors that that have continually said throughout this process that that our students do so much better both emotionally and socially as well as academically when it's face-to-face And so, you know, that's why guidelines are put out about mask wearing and about washing hands and social distancing and so on and so forth um, and that's why we follow those. Um, because it is crucial, especially for the development of our, our, our youngest children um, and youngest students, but also even for our high schoolers as well. Um, because what happens now is we're forming those um, uh, habits, if you wish, and culture uh, that's gonna influence them for the rest of their life. And so we have to be very careful about what we do now because it may have decades of implications as, as those students move forward. So um, I know our, our, our uh, elementary teachers in particular are very, very concerned about not being able to be with their students, uh, you know, and, and, and they know how important it is to have that socialization uh, for them. So that, that is a huge thing and that weighs on their mind when they make, you know, have to make a decision of, you know, coming back, not coming back and that type stuff. So I'll let uh, Jennifer say if she wants to say anything too.
4: Thanks, Paul. Um, I think that if you asked any educator, we would all agree that the best thing that we can do is be in person with our students where we can be close to them and work with them. But we have a pandemic that's interfering with that. And we have to take then everyone's health and safety into mind because we're dealing with pandemic circumstances. And so what we need to do is keep in mind that we want to try and open buildings, but we have to do that safely. And that means that if we can get everybody in a building wearing a mask and practicing social distancing, then likely many of us will be able to be together safely at school. We also then, I'm a broken record, need to go back to those metrics to know that if for some reason, the level of safety has gone down, that there's trust from those students and parents that we will then close the building till it's safe to bring them back in. We want to try and get them in there as much as possible. But I think the key word is that we have to do it safely. And that's why we're looking right now at the state level because we're not getting a lot of federal guidance about what things can school corporations put in place to make sure that that happens, other than making sure everyone's wearing a mask and socially distancing from each other.
1: Monroe County has just uh, weighed in on this. I'm gonna give you a little bit of breaking news. The county has just issued a mask order. Face coverings are required beginning at 5 p.m. today. Uh, Requires, the order requires that everyone over the age of two, with some exceptions, to wear a face mask covering when not socially distant indoors or outdoors with others uh, outside of their immediate family. They must wear the covering over the nose and mouth. So that will help uh, any other school districts in Monroe County or schools in Monroe County private um, to make sure that they have to have a, a face mask. Um, their face mask order will be in effect for all of them as well. So Jeannie Lindsay you've been following this story and, and I know that you're always looking for You know stories about trying to tell stories about the effects of things like this. What are some of the effects that you're going to be looking at long term, uh, things like testing and scheduling and teacher rights and things like that? I mean, what are some of the things that you're most interested in, in following up on?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, the, the teacher aspect of it is something I'm going to be very interested in. I mean, we had a huge teacher rally outside of the state house back in November, and it feels like that was a bajillion years ago. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to how school reopening and the concerns about, you know, structure and leadership and resources um, is going to play out in terms of the teacher advocacy especially given the election this year um, that, and that's that's going to be another huge piece that I'm very interested in um, because the person who wins the uh, gubernatorial race uh, uh, the race for governor this fall is going to be in charge of leading the Department of Education in Indiana and so Jennifer McCormick um, you know as much as she has been a resource and leader for folks as we've heard here and as I've heard in my reporting um she's leaving uh in this moment so uh, I'm I'm super curious to see how educators um and, and school folks talk about the election and and look to Governor Holcomb for some of the leadership that they've gotten from Jennifer McCormick um because that is going to be a significant transition. Um, I'm also really curious um, when it comes to schools operating. I mean, the IREAD has been, uh, can't, it was the, the standardized testing was uh, taken off the table this year, um, this, this past school year um, when the pandemic was making its debut. Um, but this year, I mean, the, the test schedule is set um, the standardized testing, the school, the state board of education has already been talking about uh, testing windows and, you know, letting schools use the iRead um for their fourth graders this fall to, to help gauge some of those reading losses. So, um, I'm really curious to see how schools are going to be navigating standardized testing uh, amid a pandemic, and you know what that's going to look like. The data that we get from schools every year on a statewide level, um, you know, 2020 is going to have a lot of asterisks uh, next to it, and and the stuff that we're going to be getting in 2021, you know, you'll see data and and basically look at the effect of COVID-19 uh, in terms of the numbers. Um, So I, you know, from a statewide education reporter standpoint, I am, I'm very nerdy when it comes to looking at data. So I'll be curious to see how that changes. Um, The other thing that I'll add to, I mean, one of the things that's consistently come up in these conversations is about support for schools uh, We've talked about cares Act funding. We've talked about, you know, federal stimulus legislation and things like that um, and with the price tag of all of these changes and all of these adjustments and closing and reopening schools if there's a pan, uh, pandemic outbreak, you know locally, it's just uh I'll be very interested to see what the budget looks like um, from the state perspective. They're not cutting anything um, for for K-12 schools during this current budget cycle that we're in right now, but I mean, January comes and the, you know, Department of Education has that huge transition with Dr. McCormick leaving, and then there's also the state budget that needs to be made, Um, and then there's also the future of federal stimulus uh, dollars and and support going to schools, so it's going to be really interesting to see how all of that plays out um and then you know the some of the data that i already mentioned
1: all right i'm going to give the other three guests the opportunity to sort of sort of uh, turn the tables on eugenie so i'm going to ask them to sort of give you a grade i mean how how are those the biggest issues in your mind too or maybe you could add some things to Jeannie's list of long-term stories that she should be looking at dr demuth
2: well, I think another uh, aspect to all of this is really the effect on our children, because um, you know, having children myself that have children, uh, you know, as a grandparent, we really worry about, you know, what what's happening in the world and what's happening to our children. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that they have to remain very positive because You know, us old people keep saying, Oh my gosh, we've never seen anything like this. And I keep saying, This is horrible. And this is, but you know what? Our kids have to see the future and they have to see positivity. So I'm really wondering how this is all going to affect. Um, You know how the long term education of our children, you know, how they um, present themselves in the world, if you will. Um, You know, I'm also worried about uh, when we put our kids online, you know, when I sit and watch TV for a couple hours, I probably see five commercials about virtual schooling. Okay, so if we're going to start start competing with virtual schooling, uh, we know we can we have those relationships with kids when they're with us. We know we can help them socially and emotionally. But if we're gonna be competing in a virtual uh, situation and competing with online schools that have been it for a long time, I'm really concerned about that. Um, I'm concerned about how schools will look in the future and I'm extremely concerned that our kids are well-educated. I think all of those things will be very interesting as time moves forward.
3: Paul? Yeah, um, I'll second everything that Dr. DeMuth just said as well. Um, But there's also something else that, you know, looking into the future and, and I know, Jeannie, she touched on this about, you know, the, the changes that are coming, the election and and Dr. McCormick leaving and so on and so forth. Um, But there's something that, that is coming this spring is another biennium. Um, And there's budgetary process. We know what COVID has done to the economy and all of our schools are funded through taxpayer dollars and when that taxpayer dollars decrease then funding decreases and so that is one of the things that um, you know as I'm looking a year from now um, uh, two years three years but definitely here coming up um, a year from now how will the new budget that's going to be started here in January February and March what what cliff is coming um and what is the governor what is the what are the legislators going to do to mitigate um we don't want another 2010 to happen again um but there's actually some conversation out there that we may be looking at that or something that may be even worse uh than what happened um and so
1: can you describe what happened a little bit
3: that that here in the state of indiana which was cut over 300 million dollars was cut out of education Um, and, and so, you know, if, (laughs) as Dr. Demo said, we're already competing with charter schools, we're already competing with, with vouchers. And, and if there's going to be another one, I I mean, it's, it's, uh, that is going to be a very difficult situation. And, um, and I think people have to realize that that is coming, um, and it's, and it's real. And so how are we going to mitigate that? And I'm not gonna let Jennifer talk about ISTA moving forward because I know there's been conversations with that as well, but, and I didn't mean to say that for you, Jennifer, but um, so I'll let Jennifer talk.
4: Thanks, Paul. No, I I think you hit two of the three big issues and the fact that that $300 million that was cut when we were doing the studies about why we can't recruit and retain high quality educators across the state of Indiana, that 300, 300 million over time turned into the billions of dollars that we are short compared to all of the states around us. And so we're very concerned about the fact that we, we still have a teacher shortage, that didn't go away. And so how are we in all of this gonna find ways to go back and recruit and retain teachers, especially if some of our medically vulnerable staff is deciding to retire early and are leaving the profession, who's going to replace them? You mentioned standardized testing. I think all of us agree that we should be spend spending the time we're spending on standardized testing, teaching our students, educating them. That's what they need from us, not taking another test. And that money that we could be that we're spending on standardized testing, we could be spending on these other things that we have identified as being higher priorities in the state. But the one thing that no one's mentioned yet is the fact that. The situation with the murder of George George Floyd has raised up again all of these systematic inequities in our society. And so we have all of these different things and systems across our state, including in the educational system, through funding, through testing, through other things that really adversely affects many students, but over adversely affects our black and brown students. And so what I'm hoping people will focus on as we go forward is what are we going to do to change the system so that every single child in this state has the same opportunities to learn and grow, regardless of their race or ethnic background.
1: I wanna, we have about two minutes to go, and we we had one more question, or not a question, it's really a comment from Facebook Um, and I'm going to just paraphrase it. It talks about what you were just talking about, Jennifer, in terms of a system. The person says we have a chance for a reset. Talks about how um, ramping up e-learning could help us um, in numerous ways. It talks about the fact that there weren't school shootings this spring because we weren't in school and that some problems encountered with e-learning pale in comparison to that. So, um, Dr. DeMuth, are we, are we in, is it going to be a reset in terms of the whole system and how we're going to be operating our schools? Two minutes. Please.
2: Well, it, it, you know, when we, this all started and we had to stop school, many of us said to each other, you know, this isn't really bad because we can relook and make sure we do reinforce those inequities and uh, make sure that they don't exist any longer. Um, and so I think that, again, those inequities did show up. We're going to be attacking them as best we can. Um, But really I want, you know, the best situation for our children is to be with us. So e-learning could help, uh, but we've got to make sure that we're we're attacking those inequities in our buildings also.
1: All right, Jennifer, do you want to comment on that? Any further?
4: Our state association is going to be working on systematic change because we know that is what is needed in this state and across the country.
1: All right. Paul, any last words? We're about out of time.
3: Uh, No, I think any type of systematic change like that, um, just like a teacher in a classroom, you're going to have so many things thrown at you. You're going to do it slowly and you're going to talk about advantages, disadvantages and go to plan B, plan C, plan D. So I, I don't see a huge jump that quickly because I think that's not good for all of our students. So
1: Okay. Uh, go slow. All right. Thank you, Paul Farmer from uh, the MCEA, the Monroe County Education Association, Dr. Judy DeMuth, MCCSC Superintendent, Jennifer Smith Margraff, ISTA Vice President and Jeannie Lindsay, my colleague from Indiana Public Broadcasting for uh, my well, I don't have a co-host today except for Jeannie, but for our engineers, uh, John Bailey and Matt Stonecipher, Mike Pashkash, and for producer Bento Boutier, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
0: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org.